Grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this evening studying the word of God. We are in Romans chapter 12 in our review. We have completed the verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. We will be, when we complete this study, we will be moving on into Galatians. But uh, since we go down into the verse-by-verse studies and get into the details of things, sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees. And so when we complete one of our verse-by-verse studies, we go back and we do a review. And that's what we're doing right now. We're currently in Romans chapter 12. Tonight we're going to start by taking a look at verses 9 through 21. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We need to ensure that our heart is prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin if necessary so that we might be filled with the Spirit under His teaching ministry so that we can learn the things of the Word of God. This also gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather here at the church tonight. I thank you for everything that was provided so that we would be able to do this. I lift up the naps, uh, Dave and Sharon. I pray for Dave and his procedure that he had done today, that he'll heal from that and he will get some relief from some of his pain. So I lift them up before you tonight. We do miss them here tonight, but I pray for those of us who are here that each and every one of us would be able to set aside the distractions of our daily lives, focus our attention on what it is that your word has to teach us tonight, that through the ministry of your word in our souls, we would become stronger in our faith and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, last time... We were right here. We read through the verses, our translation uh, last time, but we're going to go ahead and read again. By the way, before I get started on this, just as a heads up, because of the Chafer Conference down in Houston next week, there will not be a Wednesday night service. We're going to have services this Sunday. There's no problem there because the conference gets started on Monday. But uh, we will be down there Wednesday night for the closing of the conference And so uh, we will not have services next Wednesday night. I'll send out an email reminder. All right, let's take a look at the the verses that we translated out of Romans 12, 9 through 21. Love should be without any hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling closely to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Excel in showing honor to one another. Not holding back in your diligence. Enthusiastic in spirit. Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, consistent in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. But instead, associate with the lowly. Stop being wise in your own estimation. 
Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the judgment of all people. All right. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with all people. Never take justice into your own hands, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is what I thought we were going to come to. This is the one where you can get confused in what it says, but we'll talk about it as we go through this. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And that is not what a lot of people think it is. It's not talking about inflicting pain upon them because the whole concept of this passage is that you're not bringing harm to your enemy. You let God do that. He takes care of the justice, right? If there's going to be judgment that's going to take place, God's going to do it. We don't do that. We leave it in his hands. Stop being overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with that which is good. Boy, today that's that today that phrase right there is becoming more and more important because we are being overcome with evil, it seems like, doesn't it? And so you really have to focus on this because the, the world is becoming more and more dark. All right. Principles. God's standard for agape love is that it should always be genuine without hypocrisy. Second Corinthians 6, 6. Uh, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Let me back up and we'll get the whole context of this passage. But there's the phrase in genuine love. This is one of Paul's uh, Paul's long drawn out. <laughs> he, he loves to do this. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in affliction, excuse me, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things." So it goes on from there, but that's one of Paul's really long uh, sentences. But right in the middle of it, he talks about ingenuine love, and that is agape love. So we know that agape love is the idea of a, a selfless kind of love, right? It's a love that focuses on uh, the expression of love towards an object that may or may not, this is important, that may or may not merit our love, right? Because the idea of agape love is that it is not dependent upon the merit of the object. It's dependent upon the integrity of the one who's loving, right? Have you heard this before? So this is the idea of agape love, right? So it's dependent upon the integrity of the individual that's, that's doing the loving and, the, and not the merit of the object of that love. Now, what I was guilty of in my own thinking is thinking that that means agape love is always directed towards some object that is, is, is of no merit, right? That we're, we're loving something that has no merit. But believe it or not, the Bible says that we are supposed to love, agape love, 
God himself. Well, he certainly is of merit, right? But what the point of that is, if you think about it, you can have a love for God that's totally based upon who he is and and uh, why he's lovable, right? Why God is infinitely lovable, wouldn't you agree? Uh, but yet when we are to love him, when the Bible tells us we are to love him with agape love, that means we are to actually love him from the standpoint of a type of love that's based on who we are, who we have become in Christ, and having that ability to love any, anything, whether it's of merit or not. And God is part of that spectrum. There's individuals that, you know, you, you, could, you could have, as I, as I mentioned, a prayer warrior at Austin Bible Church asked for prayers for Saddam Hussein when he was getting ready to be uh, executed. That's having agape love for someone who's not necessarily an object of merit, right? But the reality of it is at the full spectrum. That's how agape love works. But it needs to be genuine. That's the whole point of this. In other words, you can't try to fake this. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who do. They try to put on this front where it looks like they are actually loving others, but in reality, in their souls, that's not the re- that's not what's going on. So, like for example, when you'll hear people, I've heard, I've I've, I've seen conversations, witness conversations, where somebody was saying something like, "Oh well, oh well, I love I love uh, I love everyone, even those who you know I, they're deep in sin, and they're doing all these things that I know that are an offense to God. I still love them, and you can kind of just sense that they really don't." That really they hate these people. They hate them with a with a with a you know really a venomous kind of a hate, right? And it's not it's not a true it's not a genuine agape love. Here's what I need to tell you: genuine agape love does not happen the day you believe in Jesus. It's something that God has to manifest in us, and it takes time. Now we might have the ability to, for example, we might have the ability to have agape love for certain individuals, but there's going to be others out there that we have a struggle with. We can't really love them, right? We have a hard time with it. It's not until God keeps working on us, right? We were talking about this, right? We're a project. We're God's project, right? And it's not until God keeps working on us that we can get to the place where we can actually have the true agape love where we can love, we can love regardless of the merit of the object. Yes, sir. We're no more deserving than we are no more deserving than anyone else. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, this is also the divine standard for Philadelphia love as well as wisdom and faith. So Philadelphia love, which is a brotherly love, right? A brotherly love. First Peter one twenty two says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified yourself, excuse me, purified your souls, leading to a genuine love of the brethren. Now that's the Philadelphia love, a genuine love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So that's God's standard. We're not supposed to fake that either, right? I mean, you can too. You can put on a front. And act like you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's not real. That the point of all this is this is something that's supposed to be a reality in our souls, not just a, a facade that we put out there. Uh, when it comes to wisdom, James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. So God's kind of wisdom, right? The wisdom that comes from God is not a hypocritical wisdom at all, is it? There's no hypocrisy in it. So if you find that your, your norms and standards, your categorical thinking, your soul, 
as it contemplates thing has built into it a, a layer of hypocrisy. That's not from God, right? That is not from God. He's not promoting that, in other words. In terms of faith, 1 Timothy 1, 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's the same kind of language. It's not a hypocritical faith. It's a genuine, genuine faith, sincere, genuine faith. It's real. It's in, it's, you're really functioning as a matter of faith. 2 Timothy 1, 5, I thought it was interesting that it was 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 2 Timothy 1, 5. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Sincere, a genuine faith. I mean, I mean, ha, there's, there's, I promise you there's individuals, you guys have all experienced this, there's individuals you've come across that you've talked to them and, and you, you really believe, you, you believe that they've accepted Christ as their Savior. They have. They have believed in Jesus. But they're not really living according to faith, right? They're not walking by faith. They are, you, can, you can witness it. You can see it. There's other individuals. You see them and you go, wow, now that's a person that's living out the faith, right? They're, they're not just a person who's believed in Jesus. They're a person who's living out the faith, and you can see it in them. And that's what God really desires in us is that genuine faith in our souls. <clears throat> As we develop divine viewpoint, we gain the ability to discern between good and evil. See, that's the whole. I've told told you before. When I first became a believer, I, my whole my whole my whole norms and standards as to how I evaluated things, what was good and what was bad, was not on track. It was off kilter, and it was only as I began to learn things from the Word and I began begin to understand and see things from God's viewpoint. That's why we call it the divine viewpoint, right? I began to see things the way God sees them that I realized, oh wait a minute, I thought this was bad. It's actually good. Or, oh, wait a minute, I thought this was good. It's actually bad. You know, I had to have a reset, uh, which happened over time. Again, as we develop, it's a developing process of divine viewpoint. More and more as the word works in us, we begin to see things the way God sees them instead of uh, from human viewpoint. The mature believer has learned to hate what is evil and cling closely. Was it, did I go to that passage a minute ago? I didn't, or did I? Hebrews 5.14, I didn't go there. Let's go there. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. See, that's what that's talking about. It's something we have to be trained to do that. We have to be trained to do that. It's not something that comes naturally. Now, I'll tell you this. I believe it did come naturally. I believe it did come naturally for Adam and Eve in the garden. I think because they were lockstep in tune with God. They were, they were in, lock, in lockstep with his righteousness. What happened, though, as a function of the fall, we no longer see things the way we should, right? We no longer have the ability to discern. And here's what's interesting about that is what, did, what happened when they ate of the tree? The tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And what was it? It was all about they began to understand things that were evil and began to understand human good and so on and so forth. But because it was a distortion of true knowledge, right, because it was distortion, they now, had, they now saw things from a different viewpoint. For example, the first indication of it was they ran from God. Now, why would they do that? Why would they run from God? Well, they knew they'd done something wrong, but beyond all that, they were ashamed of what had happened? Now, no, never before that had they been embarrassed and ashamed and ran away, did they run away from God. So already you can see that their thinking's been distorted, right? It's already been distorted. But the ability, even though they gained by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
You would think that would make them be able to understand good and evil even better, right? But it was actually the opposite. They now had lost the ability to distinguish between good and evil. And now we have to be retrained. Isn't that interesting? I've always found that interesting, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually damaged. It is a paradox because it damaged their ability to to discern between good and evil. And now as fallen creatures, we need to be retrained. Interesting because that's the whole thing. The good and evil that was learned from that tree was Satan's concepts. The mature believer has learned to hate what is evil and cling closely to that which is good. That's something that comes over time. We, we begin to... Now you say, well, wait a minute, I didn't think... Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about love a minute ago. Weren't we talking about love? Yes. See, the world would tell you that love and hate are incompatible. That's incorrect. We can love and we can hate at the exact same time. We can hate what is evil and still be able to show love. See, that's a concept the world doesn't understand. The world does not understand that. You were going to say something? We hate sin. We ought to hate sin, right? We ought to hate it. But, we uh, but we're, supposed to, we're supposed to have love for an individual and hope that they can come to know Christ as their Savior. That's for sure. Again, hatred is not the absence of love. That's what I was just talking about. You can love and hate at the same time. God is love, and yet at the same time, he abhors evil, right? Which abhorring, that's the idea of hating. First uh, John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, uh, for God is love. And so God is love, and that's defined. But then yet in Leviticus twenty twenty three, moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation, which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. That's, that means he hates them, right? I've abhorred them because of their behavior, right? He abhors evil. We must be careful what we cling closely to because we will become one with whatever or whomever we are intimate with, right? So that involves people. That involves worldly idols, right? Well, it could be anything. This thing right here, don't cling too closely to that little thing, right? Your smartphone, Right, because that can become an idol. Goodness knows, for our younger generation, it is. If you take their smartphone away from them, they'll run in the corner and start crying. You know, it's like they don't even. In fact, they don't even know how to function. Right? They don't even know how to function without their smartphone. First Corinthians six fifteen through seventeen. Do you not know? Which always means you should know. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute, by the way, that's the same kind of language as this clinging closely kind of language, right? This joining language joins himself to a prostitute as one body with her. For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So be careful what you join yourself to, what you cling closely to, uh, because uh, you're going to become one with whatever or whomever you are intimate with. If we have a loving devotion to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will regard one another as more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or inflated self-worth, but with humility of mind, think of one another as more important than yourselves. And I, I really should include 2, 4 in that. It says, do not merely give consideration to your own personal interests, but also 
to the interests of others. It's very important because Paul is not saying here, don't pay any attention to yourself. You have to. I mean, if you, if you go out, if you go out and you have a day out uh, working in the yard and you get all grimy and muddy and sweaty and nasty and stinky and everything else, Pay attention to that, and maybe you maybe you might want to take a shower when you get done with all of that, right? So there, we do pay attention to our own our own interests, right? We take care of that kind of stuff. We're supposed to. Paul is not saying don't do that. He's saying though that you're not only supposed to be thinking about yourself, but you're supposed to be thinking about the interests of others. That's where we're supposed to be. You're supposed to think of one another as more important than yourselves. It's a very important concept. With this attitude of humility, we will not seek our own honor. First Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, In the same way, you younger men be in subjection to your elders, and all of you put on the attitude of humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the sovereign hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. That's where you get into, that's the whole thing, when 5-7 is in the context of humbling ourselves when it says casting away all your worry on him because your worry is a source of concern for him, right? We talked about that on our topical study of worry. This is a place that you can get when you have humbled yourselves under the sovereign hand of God. That's, it's a function of humility that we're able to do that. But we won't seek our own honor. honor. And when, this is an interesting passage for this, but I want you to kind of just track with me on this. There's a concept here. Luke 14, 8 through 10. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But, verse 10, but when you're invited... Go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. What is he saying here? Jesus is teaching a lesson here. Don't step in there and like, oh, I'm going to take the, you know, I'm going to go to this place over here. That's like the primo place of all. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Have humility. When you go, when you go there, then go into what he's calling the last place here. And if, if. So if you're, the person who invited you wants to do so, they'll say, no, 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 no. Why don't you come over here and sit over here? And then that's actually a beautiful thing. Whereas the opposite, where you try to take the highest place and then the friend has to, this person has to come over and ask you, yeah, yeah, I need you to step out of that place. That's kind of an embarrassing situation, isn't it? But it's a function of humility. That's the key. It's a function of humility because when you walk in there, you don't think, oh, well, I need to take the place of highest honor. Instead, you Take the place, the last place, as Jesus calls it. Instead, we will try to outdo one another in showing honor to others. That's actually how it works. Instead of trying to claim the honor for ourselves, if you're truly humble in the Lord, instead of trying to claim the honor for yourselves, you will actually try to outdo one another in showing honor to others. Right? I want to be the one who shows you honor. And I want to do it in such a way that it's more so than anyone else is doing. I want to be that person that's showing honor to others. In Romans 13, 7, it says, uh, Fulfill your obligations to everyone. Give tax to whom tax is due. Give custom to whom custom is due. Give fear to whom fear is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. It's something we're commanded to do in the Scripture. We're commanded to give honor to those who are worthy of it. 1 Peter 2, 17 says, Show honor to all people. Love the brotherhood. 
Fear God, honor the king. Show honor to all people. It starts out that way. Show honor to all people. It finishes with honor the king, but it starts out by saying show honor to all people. And how does that work in real life? I mean, it's real simple. All you got to do is show somebody else some respect, right? Show, show other people some respect. Now, here's the thing. Here's where it's really hard. It's easy to do when you're in, a, in, when you're in an interaction where the other person is showing you some respect as well. But it's really hard to do if the other person is not being respectful at all. But I will tell you this. If you show the person respect, even though they're not respecting you, that's, that's well, and well, and the idea is it, it, the idea of the heaping coals is to bring them to a place of seeing what they're doing wrong and repenting. And that's the idea. If you show them respect, they're going to go, wait a minute. Well, you know, I'm at some point. The hope is that they will realize I'm the, the other person will realize I'm the one who's being a jerk here. Right. This person is being nice to me, even though I'm being ugly to them. Right. And uh, that's the that's the goal. Right. And it is the idea of the heaping burning coals. You're right. That's what it's all about. But it's easy in that situation. The sin nature can take over real easy in that situation. And you can be like, you can treat me like that. Guess how I'm going to treat you. Right. I mean, it's real easy, real easy to do that. God supplies everything we need for our Christian walk. And through the power supplied by the Holy Spirit, we are to be diligent. Interesting. So it seems like, wait a minute, what, what is, that seems almost paradoxical in a way too. Because wait a minute, God's supplying everything we need. So why do I have to be diligent? Because that's what God is asking of us. You think about all the things that God has done for us. What does God asks us, ask of us to do? God asks of us belief, right? Faith, trust, belief. What's that? Obedience. That's exactly right. He asks of us obedience and diligence. And if you think about it, that's the trifecta. If you are, if you're trusting God, if you're being obedient to what his, his word says, and you're being diligent in your walk of faith, you've, you've met the trifecta. You are walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Those three things are, are, are part of what's involved, right? So it seems like it's paradoxical because, wait a minute, he's supplying everything, but he does ask diligence of us. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Seems like I heard that somewhere recently. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's some diligence involved, right? Some diligence involved involved in showing tolerance for one another in love with all humility and gentleness with patience being diligent to do everything you can if you think about it the way this works it doesn't say it in this verse but we have another scripture that says this you're doing everything you can to be at peace with the other people right and as much as it's up to you and that's what this is talking about being diligent so diligence is involved in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent. Part of what God, that's part of what we do in order to present ourselves as approved unto God. Remember I said, the idea of what we just read, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, that this is what we do. We are diligent in our walk of faith. Be diligent. And what it says here is that we're a workman who does not be, need to be ashamed accurately handing the word of truth. We are, we are somebody who makes sure that we are understanding what the word of God says. There are so many distortions out there, so many people who are distorting what the word says. We have to be very careful to be accurate. Hebrews 4.11 says, Therefore, let us be diligent 
And this is talking about to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience, the idea of the believer's rest. Right? And it's actually interesting because in Hebrews it's taught in the context of the Sabbath rest. Right? There was a Sabbath rest, which was for Israel, a Sabbath rest. What is the rest for us today? Today. That's exactly right. Faith rests day by day. The rest for us is today. And we have to be diligent to enter into that rest. The thing about it is, if you slack off, it's real easy to not be in that place, right? Not be faith resting, not be putting it all in God's hands. Instead, you can start to get wrapped around the axle. It takes diligence. The Christian walk takes diligence. It really does. Uh, Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. So see, that is the opposite of diligence, right? As a Christian, we can become sluggish in our walk of faith instead of diligent so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we want to make sure that we remain as diligent ones, diligent ones, not sluggish ones. There's all kinds of warnings, by the way, in scriptures about being sluggish. And none of them, none of, believe me, none of them are up in the positive light. <laughs> They're all presented in a negative way. Second Peter 3, 11 through 14, since all these things are to be obliterated in this way. And we, that, what is that talking about? It's talking about this whole universe, right? Everything. We were talking about it, you know, the, the things that we have. It's all going to just it's gonna be gone. God's going to wipe it all out. Since all these things are to be obliterated in this way, what sort of people is it necessary to be in holy conduct and reverent behavior? expecting and anticipating the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be obliterated by being burned up and the elements will dissolve away being consumed by fire. But if you've ever gone to Austin Bible Church, you've probably heard this verse before. But according to his promise, we are, instead of looking for, we changed it into expecting. We're expecting new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. Therefore, beloved, since you expect these things, make a diligent effort to be found by him in peace unstained by sin and blameless it goes on from there but the idea is is this is the since this is what we're looking for since we are not since we know that this whole universe is going to be wiped out and we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and it's going to be a it's going to be if you want to think of it this way it's going to be god recreating kind of that garden type of an environment right the environment that adam and eve had back uh, when he very first put them in the garden It's going to be similar to that. It's going to be an environment in which righteousness dwells. There will be no sin in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be a place in which righteousness dwells. And if we're looking for that place, which, you know, that's eternity future for us. If we're looking for that place, if we're expecting that to come about, then we should make a diligent effort to be found by him in peace, unstained by sin and blameless. In other words, if that's where we're headed is to this place where there's there is no sin and it's all righteousness, then we need to be diligent now to be found by him unstained by sin as well. Hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully it does. All right. We should be enthusiastic in serving the Lord, but our enthusiasm should always be in accordance with truth. This is very important. I have met Christians before that were extremely enthusiastic. In fact, almost to the point of being a little bit annoying. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever I don't know if you've ever encountered that, but Christians that were super enthusiastic and it almost I have a this is my own personal thing. I don't respond. I do not respond well to new car salesmen, right? I don't do. I don't. I don't. That's not something that works for me. And sometimes Christians that are new Christians and they're really excited about their faith and whatnot can can almost come across that way, right? It's almost a little bit annoying. 
And the problem is what too many churches do is they don't, they don't make sure that those Christians, those believers, get under truth, under teaching, so that they can learn truth and let their enthusiasm be in accordance with truth. Instead, man, they send them out, get them actively doing some kind of something, right? They get them engaged in some sort of activity. The problem is if they don't know anything, if they're not functioning in accordance with truth, in some, in some cases more harm can be done than good, right? Because they're out there doing stuff and they don't have a clue whether it's right or wrong. They, 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 don't, have any, they don't have any basis. So we always want to make sure our enthusiasm, we should be enthusiastic. All of us should be enthusiastic. I hope I come across as enthusiastic about the Word of God, about what we, what we do here and what we learn here. But it should always be in accordance with truth. Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. Look what it says. Now, this is somebody who's actually learned a lot about the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. By the way, that's what the early church was called, not Christians. They were called the way. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Look at what that says. So the point is, it's not that, it's not that what he was saying was, was, completely, was completely wrong. The point of it was he was not speaking and teaching all the things that should be taught. Because look where we are. We're in the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, when this is going on, what do we have? We have, we have the, maybe we got the Gospels. Maybe we got, we might at this point have the book of James. And there's a, you see what I'm saying? There might be, but Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and looked, said, look, there's a lot more you need to be teaching and we need to make sure that we're not focusing, you know, what it says, look what it says, acquainted only with the baptism of John. So, for example, maybe we're just, we can surmise something from this passage. Maybe when he was talking about baptism and was teaching, he was teaching John's baptism and he wasn't teaching the true baptism of the spirit, right? He wasn't teaching the true baptism of the spirit. He was talking about the baptism of John. So we, we can surmise that that's what Priscilla and Aquila were talking to him about. But the reality of it was he had an, he had an exuberance. He had an excitement. He was teaching from the, the word of God, but he wasn't teaching the, the word of God accurately as he should have been. Does that make sense? And so we want to make sure that we don't let our enthusiasm uh, get, get us away from how we should, should be focusing on things of the truth. If we truly understand the hope that we have in Christ, we will rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and be thankful for the perseverance that is derived from tribulation. Now, you, you know, I'll go, first of all, to First Thessalonians. <clears throat> rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Important passage. Anytime you read something that says, this is God's will for you, you should pay attention and God's will is that you would rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Now, the pray without ceasing means to be consistent in prayer. It doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that every single second of every single day you're praying. What it means is you pray throughout the day. It's a consistent thing in your life. You pray throughout the day. I mean, I can give, I've, I've been picking on Keegan a lot lately, but let's say you're getting ready to go to someone's house and you're getting ready to go work on their HVAC system at their house. Uh, before you ever, ever walk up to the door and introduce yourself, you can pray about that. I'm getting ready to, to meet these people. I'm getting ready to talk with them. Lord, give me the words to say. Help me represent Jesus Christ to these people that I'm about to talk to. That's an example of how you, and you can just say that prayer just like that, right? It's a quick prayer. But that's the kind of thing God wants us to do. That's his will for us is that we pray those, 
those little prayers throughout the day. And uh, it's, it's, it's important. But then we go to Romans 5. And what do we see in verses 1 through 5? We see, therefore, having been justified as a result of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained, act, have obtained also, excuse me, let me read that again, through whom we have also obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. Ah! But we're supposed to. We rejoice in our tribulations knowing well that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out generously within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, so we're not just supposed to rejoice in, in the hope of the glory of God, but we also were supposed to rejoice in tribulation, knowing that God uses tribulation to grow us. God uses tribulation to bring us to a place of greater faith. Yes. I love the way it parallels tribulation and what's going to happen afterwards in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, all of this, I mean, we, yeah, we, we, we go through tribulation now. Right. We go through tribulation now and it's part of the growing process. The good thing is when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we don't have to go through tribulation anymore, do we? Because we're actually going to be sitting in Bible class and guess who's going to be teaching? It ain't going to be me. It's going to be Jesus Christ. He's going to be teaching all of us. It's going to be awesome. As we mature in the faith, we should become more and more consistent in prayer. And that's what I was just talking about a minute ago. The idea of consistency in prayer. Acts 1.14 says... uh, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Notice that language. Continually devoting themselves to prayer. Again, it doesn't mean they prayed every second of every day, but every day that throughout the day they were devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So uh, continually devoting themselves to prayer. That's the language of this. Acts 2.42, you've heard me read this a number of times on Communion Sunday especially. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This was a continued devotion to all of these things. So prayer is supposed to be a continual part of our our lives, but guess what? This also points out what? Teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread. Those are also supposed to be consistent in our lives. Acts 6, 3, and 4, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom whom may be put in charge of this task. I don't know why I couldn't read that, but I couldn't. Whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice what it says in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, see, here's the thing. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean others are not supposed to be devoted to prayer. But what this is telling you is that what was happening is before they often we look at this as the appointing of deacons, right? The idea of this is the establishment of, the, of having deacons. But the whole thing we have here going on is that the busy busyness of taking care of everybody's needs was to the point where it was keeping the leaders, the leaders who were supposed to be teaching the things of the word of God from being able to devote themselves to prayer, spend the proper amount of time in prayer into the ministry of the word. So it was, it was becoming a distraction for them now. So what that means is what I like about this is it says, you know what your leaders of your churches, your elders, uh, those that are the leaders of your churches are supposed to be devoted to prayer. It's an important thing for them. By the way, it's one of the things that I look at in a quality for an individual who would serve, say, on the deacon board and whatnot is, do they pray with me? Do they pray together with me? I I like it when I can pray together with my deacons. 
Sharing with others is an outward activity of Christian fellowship. Now, we, it actually, it's funny, I say it's an outward activity of Christian fellowship. The word for fellowship and sharing is the same word in the Greek. It's koinonia. It means to share. It means to have fellowship. It means to contribute. It means all these things. <clears throat> so we can share in terms of conversation with one another. We can share in terms of uh, sharing good things with other people. Galatians 6, 6, the, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, right? So the idea there is that, and I've told you this before, the, the way God's, you know, I'm going to call it God's economy, the way God has set things up is the person that serves in the role of the pastor teacher, the person that's the overseer of the local church should not in any way be doing that for money. Right? The person who's doing that does so out of the love of the Lord, and there is no interest in money. It's not a matter of, oh, I've got to make sure that I get such and such a salary in order to be able to. No, no, that shouldn't even. If, 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 this, if I were to die, I will tell you all this right now. If I were to die tonight, and you found yourself in a search for who the next pastor of this church is going to be, if you bring somebody in here and somebody asks you the question, how much can you pay me, that already is one strike against them. Because what it should be is all throughout. The reason I say it is it should be all throughout the whole discussion. It should have nothing to do with that. If you, you have come to the faith conviction that you believe this person is the right person to be the pastor of the church. And that person has come to the faith conviction that they believe God is bringing them to this local church. And all of that is like-minded among everybody. And it's concluded that this is the person. Then at that point, if they ask you, okay... Uh, I'm just curious. I mean, can, can you guys pay me a housing allowance? Can you pay, if, that, if, it, if it's all been decided and then they ask you a question as to whether or not the church can afford to pay them, that's legit. But if they walk in the door and say, okay, how much can you pay me? Can you give me health insurance? Can you do this? If they do that, walk away from them right away. They, you've got the wrong person. On the flip side, however, this is the flip side. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. You, as members of the congregation, should be motivated to try to take care of your pastor. Now, you guys know, you, it's been this way since we established the church. You know that I have a secular job. I work. I'm, I'm gonna, actually going to, I've got some things I need to do in terms of work when I get home tonight uh, from Bible class. When we're all done with this, I've got some things I need, need to do when I get home in terms of wrapping up my work for the day. So I have a secular job. But your heart should be in a place where, when the church is able to do so, that I would be able to retire from that job and just be a full-time pastor. That's what you should want for me as your pastor is that I, I don't have to have that secular job anymore. At the same time, not our will, but the Lord's be done, right? In other words, we want to make sure we're, will, we're yielding to his will. But the point being that the desire of the pastor should not be for money, but your desire should be that your pastor would be compensated to the point where he does not have to have an outside job. Now, Paul, what did Paul talk about all the time? He was a tent maker, right? He would show up and he wouldn't ask anybody for money, right? He would show up and he would do what he needed to do to make his own money. So the people that he was coming to see would not have to give him anything. But now he's teaching the concept here in Galatians that those who receive the word from him should want to share all good things with the one who teaches them, right? That's the idea. Philippians 4.15 says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at my first preaching of the gospel to you after I left Macedonia, no local church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you alone. 
And he's telling the people at Philippi that they did a great job of sharing with him, providing for him. goes on to say, for even while I was in Thessalonica, you sent a gift of gift several times for my needs. In other words, they were, their heart desire was to take care of Paul. They wanted him and his missionary journeys as he was doing different things. They wanted him to be taken care of it. So they gave. They were a very giving church at Philippi. So it's an important aspect of how it works. We should actively pursue hospitality toward others, including strangers. Actively pursue that. First Timothy 3.2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable. There it is, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or argumentative, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Hospitable. Hospitality. It means that you, you're one who can show hospitality to others. Titus 1.8. Uh, we'll back up. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. That's the idea of argumentative. Not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, about, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there's you got the idea of hospitable. That's a characteristic of an overseer. But is it just overseers or is it really supposed to be all of us? Think about it. First uh, Peter 4, 9 says being hospitable toward one another without spreading gossip. We are supposed to be hospitable toward one another without spreading gossip. Those, are, those by the way, don't go together. <laughs> right? But we're supposed to be able to do this also with uh, strangers. 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10 says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So showing hospitality to strangers is a positive attribute. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, this is one of the more interesting verses in our Bible, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. <laughs> That's fascinating to think that sometime in your life, uh, you may have actually had an, in, an encounter with an angel presenting itself as a human being. Remember, that happened. We read a lot about that in the Bible, how the angels would appear and show up at, in the appearance of a human being. And you may have had an encounter with an angel and not know it. You, you didn't realize it at the time. Fascinating to think about that. But the, still, the whole idea is we want to show hospitality to strangers all the time. Third John 5, I mean, how many times do we turn to Third John? Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, right? Now, this is talking about, see, we, we often, when we think of strangers, we might think, well, that's talking about unbelievers or something. No, we might run into brothers and sisters in Christ that are strangers to us, right? We don't know them. They're strangers to us. So this what this says is you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially if they are strangers. Regarding those who mistreat us, Jesus taught to speak well of them and pray for them. Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now that is not an easy command to obey. But that is what we should do. Love our enemies. That's agape love. Do good to those who hate us. 
Bless those who curse us. Pray for those who mistreat us. Pretty sure that's agape. Yeah, agapao. That's agape love. So that's a really difficult command to obey. But yet we are supposed to. That's how we're supposed to be able to function in agape love. But again, we can't do that on our own. How does that happen? That comes about as God transforms us as his love is manifested in us. I mean, we don't naturally love that way. I mean, you, you, do, are you going to naturally love your enemy? I don't think so. I mean, we don't do that naturally. He also showed us how to do this by example, by the way. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth, right? He was being abused. He didn't even open his mouth. It is humility. It's interesting because I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about this with regard to Jesus. There were times when he did not open his mouth, right? When he was going through what he was going through and he did not open his mouth. There's other times when he walked through the temple and he threw the tables over and he told the money changers exactly what was what, right? So he knew when to say something and when not to say something. And that all comes from humility, just what you just said. That comes from a position of humility. Luke 23, 34 but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they, know, they do not know what they are doing, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. He, he looked at the people that were doing what they were doing to him, and he says, they, these guys don't even know what they're doing. They don't even realize what they're doing right now. He had enough, he had enough wisdom. He had enough understanding. You've got to remember, at this point, he's still in kenosis. Remember that. He's still in kenosis at this, kenosis at this point. So his wisdom that he's using in praying this prayer and asking heavenly, his Heavenly Father to forgive them comes from a standpoint of human understanding, right? Because it was, it was his huma- he was functioning in his humanity, in kenosis. And he said, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They, they, they didn't understand. Perfect human understanding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure, perfect human understanding. First Peter 2, 20 through 23. For if you are harshly treated when you sin and you put up with it, what credit is there for that? But if you suffer unjustly... When doing what is right, and you remain steadfast, this finds favor with God. For you were called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who, verse 23, who, while being reviled, did not revile in return, while suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." In other words, so Jesus gave us the example. He trusted in his father, right? He was entrusting himself to his father. All right, now I want you to keep this in mind. Keep this, keep this language here in mind. He, entra- he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And it goes on to say in verse 24, a very important verse, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross in order that having been separated from sins we might live to righteousness for by his wound singular you were healed but back here in verse 23 he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously his father and he kept entrusting himself to his father all right now i want you to think about all judgment has been handed over to the son so we are supposed to be entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously we're supposed to follow his example so when whatever's happening to us we're supposed to entrust ourselves to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom has been handed all judgment, right? That's, again, easier said than done. I'm not saying this is easy. That's what we're supposed to do. Rejoicing with one another, 
is one of the greatest blessings of being part of the body of Christ, right? It's wonderful when we get to rejoice together, isn't it? I mean, how many of us, how many of us, it was, how many of us got a little tickle, uh, just a little bit of a, of a tickle, and it was really fun to sing happy birthday to Gus on Sunday, right? It's Sunday at the potluck, it was Gus's first birthday, right? And we all got to sing happy birthday to him. Now, that was a special moment, and it was fun. We were, it was a very joyful event. So it's really cool to be able to do that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial service of your faith, I rejoice and want to share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and desire to share your joy with me. This is something we should want. We should want to rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should want to share our joy with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, this is... One of those things where I think the local church facilitates that, right? I mean, you can. Can you learn the things of the Word of God and, and not come to a local church? Can you listen online and learn the things of the Word of God? Can you grow in the faith under the teaching that you get over the Internet? Absolutely. But there are things like this that you miss out on, the, the, the ability to rejoice with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to share your joy with them, to have that kind of an experience within the body of believers at a local church is a special thing. It's a very special thing. The fellowship of shared rejoicing also results in shared weeping. Now, often we don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about that, but the truth, uh, truth is the same fellowship that allows us to have that shared rejoicing also results in shared weeping. Job 2, 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him. They came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, that's not termite, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each one of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down the ground, on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And they were weeping over their friend Job. Now, we know what ends up coming out of this, right? They all go and try to give him counsel, and unfortunately, they give him terrible counsel because what is Job going through? He's going through undeserved suffering, right? He's going through undeserved suffering. And each one of these says, Job, what did you do wrong? Why did you bring this upon yourself? And they all say the wrong thing. But before they get to that, where they give him bad counsel, when they come up and they meet him and they see what he's going through, they wept because they saw what pain he was in. And that's part of the fellowship of the saints. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in, the, in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Now that, by the way, there's a lot of things you can do with this. And there's a lot of reasons why Jesus wept. But certainly part of that, part of the reason that he wept was because he saw others that were struggling Right. He saw them weeping. He saw her weeping. Right. Uh, and he wept. And there's other reasons as well. But Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And it goes on from there. But one of the things I want you to realize is that 
You know, some people kind of have this idea that, well, if I'm a strong enough Christian, then I should never have that kind of thing happen to me. I should never want. No, that's not true at all. If you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ and they're growing, they're going through something that's very difficult. You will shed tears. You will weep if you truly love them and you truly uh, see the kind of thing that they're going through. You will weep. I'm trying to see where we are on this. We have a lot of points left on this. And I don't want to keep going through all of this and take us too long. We're already almost at the top of the hour. We're going to stop right here. We'll come back next time. We'll pick up where we left off. We'll do a quick review of what we've looked at. And we'll, do, we'll pick up where we left off on Sunday morning. As we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we should be harmonious with our fellow believers, which is to the glory of God, Romans 15.5-7. So we'll look at that on Sunday morning. But since we are almost at the top of the hour, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we have learned we learned a lot tonight. This was there was a lot to take in, a lot to a lot to think about. Uh, but help us to absorb these things into our soul. Help us to understand them. Help us to dwell on them so that they will dwell richly within our souls. Help us to consider the humility that it takes to truly think of others instead of ourselves. Help us try to fully grasp the humility it takes to love even those who are unlovable who in no way deserve our love. But, Father, you loved us even while we were yet sinners. You had love for us when we were undeserving, and we remain undeserving to this day. Your grace has been poured out upon us, and it's, it's amazing to see. We, if we all think about our lives, it's amazing to see all the things that you're doing in our lives and the changes that have happened and the wonderful things that are coming about because of you. But it never ever, ever is because we somehow deserve it. We don't. We do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve any of the blessings that you've poured out upon us, Father. We thank you for that, but help us to have that mindset that Jesus had where we can look at others and see them in a different way and have love for them, even though we hate the things that are going on in this world around us that are so in opposition to you, the distortions that are taking place, the Isaiah 5, good is evil and evil is good. It's happening in front of us. We are being told that we are the bad people because we believe in you and we understand what true holiness and righteousness is. We are being called evil. And those that are evil are trying to call themselves good. Father, we ask that you would help us to continue to hate that which is abhorrent to you, but at the same time be able to have love for others, to recognize that your grace is what pulled us up out of the mire. Your grace and your love is what has rescued us from the domain of darkness. You have brought us to a place where we can see you. And Father, we want to see you even more clearly as the days go by. But all of that is because of your grace. All of that is because of your love. And help us not get arrogant and start thinking that somehow we're better than the one next to us. We're not. And help us to have that kind of love for those around us, even those who are perpetrating these evil things. We should love them, realizing that Jesus died for them on the cross. And we should want them to know the truth. We should want the blinders to come off of their eyes. We should want them to see and know and Father, we should want them to come to a place where they have a relationship with you. Help us to begin to think this way, but it won't happen until you make us humble. Help us to be humble enough to think that way. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.